Yesterday, you know that we celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11, uh, September 11, 2001. Many of you remember is the day that changed America when 19 terrorists hijacked four planes and transformed them from passenger cargo to guided bombs, carrying 20,000 gallons of jet fuel, making them strategic weapons of, of destruction. And they did this in order to carry out suicide attacks against symbols of finance and the military and the government in America. And so you might remember 8.45 a.m., the first plane crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, instantly killing hundreds of people and trapping thousands. And at first it was mistaken for a freak accident until 18 minutes later, the second plane sliced through the second, the South Tower of the World Trade Center. A third plane crashed into the Pentagon, and the fourth plane was hijacked, but it never hit its target. As the people aboard were starting to get news, their flight had been delayed by the sovereign grace of God, and so they were able to have their cell phones on here, start receiving some of the news. They realized their plane was being hijacked, and so a group of passengers and flight attendants decided, we're going to fight back. And they forced the plane to crash into a field in Pennsylvania. No survivors. But even with the downing of all four planes, the horror wasn't over. Many of you remember that there was a catastrophic turn when the South Tower of the World Trade Center started to collapse. And you need to understand what a big deal this was because these towers, they were built to withstand fire, to withstand winds in excess of 200 miles per hour, but they could not withstand the tremendous heat that's generated by 20,000 gallons of burning jet fuel. And so it fell. 10.30 a.m., the North Tower followed suit and collapsed. And by the time the dust settled, all told there was about 3,000 men and women that were killed in the worst terror attack that ever happened on American soil. And as a nation, as we quietly sifted through the ashes and the ruins, the question is, how do we recover from something like this happening? And I know it's hard to imagine the scope and the scale of such immense tragedy. And I'm not trying to minimize it, but I want you to think about the reality perhaps you have felt on a personal level, something like that. You know what I'm talking about? When your personal life feels like it's reduced to a pile of rubble. And so I want you to be thinking about in the back of your mind as we're talking through scriptures this morning, what have you lost this year? What has been burned? What has been broken in your life or in the lives of people around you? You know people who've lost their health, their homes, their hope. People who have broken finances, in their situation, broken friendships, broken families. And the question is, how do people who've been devastated around you recover from this? How do we recover from the wreckage in our lives and in our world? If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah. I know it's probably not a familiar book for you. It comes right after Ezra, right before Esther. But we are launching into this series called Restore. And it's called Restore because the big idea of this book, as we read through this book, we're going to discover that we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what's been broken, 
Not necessarily replacing things and just making things the way they were, but God repairs and rebuilds and restores in a way that's better, something new, something that's better because it's from the Lord. And I want you to be thinking about if anyone can understand loss and brokenness, it's the people of God, the people of God in Israel. So let me give you some context about this passage because maybe you're not familiar with Nehemiah, but Israel, way back when, maybe if you remember, after they were led into the promised land, they're receiving the promises and blessings of, of God. They decided, you know what? This is wonderful, but it's not enough for us to have God as our king. All the cool nations around us are represented by these, these powerful rulers. So we want an all-star captain for our team too. And God tells them, you know what? It's not going to go well for you. The reality is that kings are human. They're sin sinful and selfish just as much as anyone else. And they'll have their own agendas. They'll take advantage of you and, and do things the wrong way. No, 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 we still want this king for ourselves. So God humors them and permits it. And then what happens in Israel's history? Three kings in, things start to go wrong. Even though God granted Solomon, perhaps one of the most famous kings of the Bible, and the son of King David, he granted him surpassing wisdom and surpassing riches. He decided, just like God predicted, I want to be like these other pagan kings. And so we see in 1 Kings chapter 11 that he decided, I'm going to have multiple wives and concubines, just like all the, the pagan kings who take advantage of their people and oppress their people. And unfortunately, he started having all these wives and concubines that were not necessarily Israelites, didn't necessarily worship the living God, but brought in their own gods to worship. And he kind of humored them because he was trying to be tolerant. He wanted to be like the pagan kings of the world. And then we see in 1 Kings 11, that he starts to join them in worshiping other gods. And even as a king, abusing his authority to raise up places of idol worship for those gods. And then his son Rehoboam comes after his father dies, inherits the kingdom, and continues his father's trajectory, ruling just like all the other pagan kings. And as attention in Israel builds, it leads to a civil war. The kingdom splits. And what happens is all the, the, the remaining, a couple of loyal tribes uh, form Judah to the south, where Rehoboam continues to be king. But 10 of the tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel revolt, and they form a new kingdom. They're, they continue to be called Israel in the north. So you have Israel in the north, and then uh, continuing the line of David, ruling in Judah in the south. Now, unfortunately, even though the north was trying to rebel against the uh, idolatry and the sins of of, of uh, Rehoboam and Solomon, they were actually already infected with idolatry and compromise. And so wicked king after wicked king, it's weird. You read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you see that Israel has king after king after king. This king comes, and they were wicked in the sight of the Lord, wicked in the sight of the Lord. King after king, wickedness. And so it leads eventually to God's judgment. The Assyrian Empire comes and conquers the northern kingdom, and by 722 BC, the nation of Israel is wiped out. Those 10 tribes, gone. That's why, historically and biblically, all you hear after that time is about Judah. And that's why the people became, started to be called just the Jews. That's why you only hear about the Jews after a certain period of, of Israel's history. The people of Judah. Now, despite Israel's fate, despite the warning that came from prophets, Judah also continues to turn from God. And the result is that God sends the Babylonian Empire to come along, and it conquers Judah, destroying Jerusalem by 597 B.C. And so what they do is they 
all the best and the brightest of God's people and the rest poverty in ruin. And just as prophesied in Jeremiah 25, this exile lasts 70 years. That's a lifetime, an entire generation that has only known servitude and oppression. They know brokenness. They know ruin. But God has a redemption plan to restore his people. Way back in Isaiah chapter 44 through 45, he prophesied that there would be a, he would raise up King Cyrus. He names him even before it happens. 150 years before it happens, he names King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire will come and liberate the Jewish people, allowing them to return from exile. And then it happens in 538 BC, just as God prophesied. And so the first wave of Jewish people returned to Jerusalem under Governor Zerubbabel. And then a few years later, a second wave, the priest Ezra. And then 13 years later, we arrive at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, that's November, December, in the 20th year, Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Let's stop right there for a minute. So we meet Nehemiah. He's this high-ranking servant of Artaxerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He's accompanying that king to the Winter Palace in Susa. But he's also a Jewish man. So when this group of fellow Jewish kinsmen return from Jerusalem, he's eagerly asking them, do you have any news? How are the effort? How are the people who've returned? And do you know that many life-transforming, history-changing moments start when a person is willing to ask, a genuine question of concern. Because it would be very easy for Nehemiah, who's lived this very privileged life serving the emperor, to be he, him being generationally geographic from Jerusalem for 70 years, right? To be completely detached, not caring at all about a distant land and distant people, distant problems. Verse 3, And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the returning exiles who've returned to Jerusalem are in great trouble and shame. How so? Because the walls and the gates of, this, of the capital, the center of worship for the people of Judah, remains in ruins. So what? What's the big deal about not having a wall as long as the buildings inside the city are, are intact? Now, you have to think in terms of ancient Near East culture that with these cities, these walls and gates are a matter of life and death. You see, the walls and gates, they enclose the city. They protect people against outside threats and outside attacks. And without them, they're left exposed. Because during that 70 years of exiles, a lot, it wasn't just like the land was empty. There were many enemies, many threats that had grown to fill in the void. So how does Nehemiah respond? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You ever, friend, ever have a friend or a doctor tell you, uh, you're going to need to sit down for this. You better sit down. When somebody says something like that to you, it means that you're about to receive really bad news, the kind that makes you feel weak and wobbly, like the ground beneath you has been pulled out from under you. And so we see here 
with Nehemiah. He's so overcome by despair, he actually has to sit down when he receives the news. And then he ends up, after that, he responds by weeping and fasting and mourning and praying continuously, it says, for days. And actually, the text shows us he continuously did that for three months. That's the time that elapses between chapters 1 and 2, that he's praying and mourning over this news that he's received. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because it's easy for us to just gloss over the text. You remember that the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed over 150 years ago. They've been repaired for 150 years. And so the question I want to ask you is, why is Nehemiah so broken up about this old news? 150 years. That'd be like me coming up to Victor this morning. It's like, hey, Victor, have you heard? President Lincoln was assassinated. You know, and you would look at me, Victor, and said, I know. That's 156 years ago. That's kind of old news, right? And so what I want to propose to you, you read through the text, is that what Nehemiah received, he didn't receive any new information, but instead he was receiving a new perspective from God. And so I want to ask you, what do you think has changed? What do you think is breaking his heart? As he weeps over Jerusalem, it foreshadows and reminds us in the Bible there was a record of one other man who wept over the city of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, it says, when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he did what? He wept over it. And then saying to himself, if you'd only known this day the things that make for peace, Jerusalem, that the days are coming when your enemies surround you, when you're hemmed in from every side when you are torn down to the ground, you and your children within you, not leaving one stone upon another. In other words, no walls, no gates, because you did not know the time of your visitation from the Messiah. You see, Jesus wasn't weeping over a collection of broken buildings or broken walls, but he's weeping over broken people within those walls who are in need of a Savior. And so, see happening here is that I want, I want you to consider that the Holy Spirit is opening up Nehemiah's heart to have a heart like Jesus. Well, the book of Nehemiah is not about Jesus. Jesus is the God of the Bible. Every story points to his big story. And so as a faithful follower of God, as a man who is living out his scriptures, Nehemiah is waiting for this Messiah to come and to restore just as we wait for Jesus to come again and restore us. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, I tell you this because this, you and I, we're in a city that's no less spiritually bankrupt and broken than Jerusalem. If we look at our cities, they're defenseless and devastated by our enemy, the evil one. People's lives that are in ruins because of their hurts, their fears, broken relationships, our sin and our loneliness, and their loss. And the tendency for us is to not be troubled because it's all we've ever known. To us, that seems normal. That's just how the city and the people are. In their day, the walls were broken for over 150 years. That's just the way it is. That's just normal. And so we can become so accustomed to the brokenness, the spiritual bankruptcy, that we no longer share Jesus' heart. It no longer breaks us or bothers us. And so what we're seeing this message happen is that in broken cities, God's restoration starts 
with a broken heart like Jesus for people. And so I want to invite you to look at our city today. There are many metaphorical broken walls and gates, isn't there? Vulnerable. So attacks from the evil one. Broken hearts and broken lives. Broken families and friendships or broken futures. All in need of a savior. And so we want to start off this morning by asking you, do you have a heart like Jesus? Do you have a heart like Nehemiah? Does your heart break for the brokenness in our churches, in our families, in our communities? Many of you have probably discovered unpleasantly, like myself, that during shelter in place, that it's easy to be insulated, to be desensitized, to be distracted into a self-absorbed, self-indulgent life, ignoring the brokenness of the world around, world around us. But if you're open to God, He can give you a burden that breaks you in order to, to prepare you for a kingdom vision that would include you. And so I want to challenge you. Do you want a God-sized vision for your life? Then ask God for a God-sized burden for people. So he starts, he's mourning, his heart is broken, and he starts praying. And what does he pray about? Let's look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandment. Now I want you to see this. This is the opposite of how many people pray. We tend to come to God with our list. Lord, be a good administrative assistant. Here's my list. Please take care of it. And Nehemiah, he doesn't start off with a list of things. Instead, he comes to God with thankfulness, with a joyfulness almost. Even though he's wrecked and in despair, yet his starting place is from a place of praise to what he proclaims to be the great and awesome God. Great because he's faithful in loving his people and great because he keeps his promises to them. And so I want to challenge you, when you feel helpless and hopeless because you're surrounded by brokenness, start worshiping. As we do, what it does is it reminds us that God was our hope and our help in yesterday's problems. And so I have confidence that he will be as well in today's ruins. That's what worship, that's what praising does. That's why we start off with that when we come to God. Verse 6, let your ears let your ear be attentive, he's speaking to God, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly, corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. So he from adoration to adoration, that day and night he's praying before God on behalf of the sins of God's people, including himself, including his family. Why is he doing that? Nehemiah is not the one who destroyed the city of Jerusalem or its people. You see what's happening here is verse 7 is dealing with the real obstacle to restoration. That God's people haven't kept their covenant relationship with him. They have not been faithful to a faithful God who has kept his covenant. And so in verse 8, 
God has warned them repeatedly all the way since the time of Moses and back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. If you are unfaithful, in other words, if you walk from God, then you're also walking away from his protection, from his blessing, from his presence. And what happens is then we experience the consequences of life from him, just as Judah did when the land of Judah was conquered and scattered amongst the nations. Now, pay attention. Here's the key that I want us to land on in this section of Scripture, all right? In his prayer, Nehemiah isn't blaming his problems and suffering on Babylon. They're the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. We're the victims here. He doesn't blame the suffering and the brokenness on the current Medo-Persian Empire administration. Well, they, they let us go free, but they're not giving us any support. They didn't build any infrastructure. He doesn't turn to blame the Jewish people who've already returned to, to the land. What in the world have you been doing this past? It's been years started returning to the land. What have you been doing all this time? You are lazy and incompetent. It should be done by now. You see, and this is not to blame or shame victims when we are the ones recipients of hurt or abuse or hardship. But here's the key. Nehemiah understands experience restoration from God. We need to have the right relationship with God. You understand what I'm saying? Like, we can point fingers all we want and assign blame all we want, but it doesn't matter. If you want restoration to come from God, we need to experience the right relationship with God first. And so the question is, how do we get there? And we see in this passage that what Nehemiah does is that he sees that God's restoration starts with humility in prayer before God. What I mean is the humility, you come and you express to God humble recognition of who God is in prayer, and then what I've done in sin, because that gives us the right mindset. It gives us the right perspective. It helps us to approach God the right way. And so we start off by repenting of our own sin. And we need to understand this. Because God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not the force from Star Wars. We don't manipulate him to do what we want. He's good and he's God. And so we need to do what he wants. And the problem is that we haven't. We've sinned. And our tendency is to minimize our own sin and to maximize other people's sin. It's Babylon's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's that person's fault. I'm wronged and righteous. God should be on my side. And we need to say instead, you are holy and righteous, Lord. I need to get on yours. And I haven't because I sin just like everyone else. As a pastor, I have the great privilege to come alongside uh, many people in and out of our church who are struggling in their marriages. And uh, we spend a lot of time talking about things, and you can just see the walls that have crumbled and broken because of sin. And so a lot of times we get caught up into these conversations, and then it becomes a he said, she said, his fault, her fault, and there's a lot of the blaming and shaming game that happens. And, you know, I could play referee and say, yes, 49% is this person's fault, but 51% is that person's fault. Therefore, that's the person who's done wrong and needs to, to shape up. But I found that the most effective thing that God uses to speak to people is I'll ask them, you know what, we're just going in circles and, and pointing fingers. Do you really want restoration in your marriage? Then stop focusing on the other person's sin and start humbly asking God to show you yours. But I'm the one that's been wrong. I understand that. I understand. I know that 
in, in many circumstances, one person has been much more wrong than the other. But that's not what God is asking you. That's not what Nehemiah does. He is definitely the wronged party. The, the, the Jewish people are the wronged party. And yet he comes and confesses his sin and the sin of his people and his family. And so we start by humbly asking God, what is my sin? Show me my sin. And here's the key, not just from your own point of view, because I've heard many spouses come into counseling, well, they'll confess like this tiny little sin. Yeah, you know, that one time I uh, maybe wasn't that kind. But this, my husband or my wife, you know, not just from your own point of view, but what would your spouse say is how you sin in the marriage? What would wise counsel maybe mentors or pastors or elders and deacons in your life, what would they say? And then you confess that before God. And like I said, we're not trying to blame and shame someone, especially if they're the more hurt person. But what we see in this passage is, if you want restoration, then you've got to start repenting. Now, Nehemiah, he doesn't just confess his own sins, but he confesses the sins of his family and his church, God's people, and his city. And this is the very opposite of how we operate in our society. I'm an individual, and I'm only accountable for myself, not for anyone else. But that's not how Jesus sees it. That's not how the Bible shows it, that God's people are in this together. And so we get so angry about the brokenness and the, and the ruins in this world, but what we can't say, what it's not, is it's not the conservatives or the liberals. It's not black people or white people or Asian people or Latino people. It's not the rich that's the problem or the poor that's the problem. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God individually and collectively to contribute to the suffering of the city. Everybody's sin working in concert to create suffering. And so we pray, God, forgive my spouse. And to be honest with you, Lord, I forgive them even though I feel like they're, they, they don't deserve it. And yet I also remember this truth, that neither do I. I did not deserve the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. God, forgive my church when there are difficulties and, and conflicts within us. Forgive our church when we care more about our comfort than our community. God, forgive our city for turning against you and your goodness and your justice and your mercy. You see, what's happening here is that through repentance, this isn't, this isn't about beating yourself up, but through repentance, Nehemiah leans heavily into the grace of God. And we need to do the same. So let me ask you, how do you need to come before God in repentance before you can experience God in restoration? And are you praying for others? Are you repenting? others. Well, they have to own their own sin. Yes, but we can confess the sins of our family, of our growth group, of our church, of our city, and we can ask for God's forgiveness and mercy to transform that person in that situation. And I want you to think about right now, you're thinking, you know, many of us think, okay, I can do that. What about that person that you feel deserves forgiveness the least? That person that, well... I don't need to pray for them. They can just let God deal with them. <laughs> that person who has hurt you. And then we need to remind ourselves, because we forget that I also was undeserving, an undeserving recipient 
of the oceans of grace that God has poured daily, moment by moment. And that gives me the grace to be able to pray and confess the sins of others and ask forgiveness even for that person who's most difficult for me. So as we seek restoration, we come and humbly praise and humbly confess, and that moves us into the right relationship with God, and it also moves us into the right mindset for us to present our requests. So instead of coming before God, here's my laundry list of requests. Let me ask things selfishly and personally that, that maybe not according to your will, but as we humble ourselves before him in praise and confession, it puts us into the right place so that our requests are in line with God's heart. Verse 9. But if you return to me, well, let, let me give you some context. So he says in verse 8, remember the word that you, God, commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people. Verse 9, but if you return to me, word of the Lord, and keep my commandments, and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And so Nehemiah continues appealing to the word of God, not only about the consequences of walking away from him, but also the promises that if God's people return to him, that means to be in trust, to be in obedience, that he promises to regather them, to restore them, as he did long ago when he saved the Israelites from slavery and death in Egypt. That's what Nehemiah is recalling. And then in verse 11, he wraps up, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to me, Nehemiah, your servant, today. And grant him, he means me, Nehemiah, mercy in the sight of this man. What man? Well, now I was cupbearer to the king. So this is what I love about Nehemiah. He's not a prophet or a priest or a pastor. He's just a regular working guy, just like most of us. And yet he recognizes that God has given him influence as kind of a, a, the cupbearer, the confidant to the king. And so he recognizes he has an avenue of influence that maybe the burden God has given him needs to explore. But there's a catch. It's not so simple. You see, he's about to approach the most dangerous most powerful man in the known world at that time, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And if you know anything about uh, ancient cultures, ancient Near East cultures, if feeling fickle or frustrated, he can put this non-Persian Jewish servant to death in an instant. Just if he feels like it. He doesn't like the way that, that Nehemiah is wearing his shirt today. Execute this man. So this is a terrifying thought to approach the king. And it reminds me of uh, this our search committee interviewed a youth pastor candidate and uh, he was a man who served in many churches. He had served in multiple churches and so we asked him, what are some of the differences you've, that you've observed between the, the various churches that you've served at? And his response uh, in summary was, well, you know, I see that there's two kinds of church cultures. There's those who live by fear and those who live by faith, entire churches. Those who live by fear say, 
well, you know what? I can't do that. I can't go on a mission trip. I can't go on that retreat. I can't, you know, share the gospel or serve or give or help. It might threaten my SAT preparation. It might threaten my reputation. It might threaten my convenience or my life. The cost is too high. I'm fearful. And those who live by faith, churches that live by faith, I trust you, God, that your word is faithful and true, that whatever the cost or whatever I lose, that what I gain in Christ is better. And so when we follow Jesus and it requires some risk, your response in fear or faith reveals if you really trust God and his promises. We can say all we want, that I love Jesus and I trust his word, I believe his word, I trust his promises, but it's that moment when you make a choice between fear or faith, that's going to show you, do you really trust him? And Nehemiah, he faces just such a moment. Will Will his fear of this king silence him? Or will his conviction from God step into a commitment to God? And what we see in this section of prayer in verses 9 through 11 is, is what this is what faith sounds like. He's basically saying, because God, you are a promise-keeping redeemer. We've seen it in the past with God's people. I trust you to hear me and to help me before this king for the restoration of your people so that if you move forward, so will I. That's what the prayer of faith looks like. And so in a broken world, Restoration starts with trusting God and his promises over fear of the circumstances. You see, Nehemiah knows in order for him to ask God for help, he needs to genuinely trust God as the helper. That he looks and sees the problems of the city are big, but God's promises are bigger. That the Medo-Persian king has great power, but my God is greater. And so as Jesus breaks your heart for other people, as we repent for your sin and your city, how do you need to move from fear to faith in your praying? What I mean is, what is that risky ask? That thing that if you ask God, would really require you to trust him and his promises. Now, I want you to catch this. I don't want you to miss that last part. Not just trusting God. Many people say they trust God, but also his promises. Because a lot of people ask God for a lot of things, and then when something doesn't happen, they're like, well, why didn't God show up? And the reason why is because that's not faith, unless what you're asking God comes from the truths and the promises of God's word. Amen? It's been a rough year, right? And uh, One of my high school classmates, kind of gives you a little bit of a picture of how old I am. But one of my high school classmates, uh, her daughter um, was recently married and uh, bought their, their uh, first uh, modest home, uh, nestled in uh, the beautiful forests of El Dorado County. And, uh, and it's a picturesque place. If you don't know, it's kind of like towards northern, a little bit more in Northern California. Picturesque place to raise their th- three children, two years old, four years old, six years old. Unfortunately, many of you know August 14th, the Caldor Fire started tearing through Northern California. So far, it's burned more than 186,000 acres of land, 500 homes, including theirs. Now, praise the Lord, they were able to evacuate 
but they lost everything. When all of your dreams go up in smoke, when people around you are left sifting through the, the rubble, how do they recover from that? I want you to think about in your own life, in the lives of people in our cities. What has been lost? What has been burned? What has been broken this year? And we're to invite God to restore, to repair and to rebuild something better. You see, there's many broken walls and gates in our cities, devastated, they've lost jobs, they've lost homes and their health and their hope. There's increasing division in politics, even in friendships, without any healing, without any humility, without any empathy, without any repentance. During certain place over the past year, there's been a sharp rise in divorce, domestic abuse, child abuse, substance abuse. In 2020 alone, more than 7,000 churches in the United States closed their doors for good for the last time. And to give you some context, that's double the number of churches that have closed in previous years, in 2019, 2018, et cetera, all the way back. Double. In fact, one study I read uh, this past week predicts that one in five churches will close for, for good in the next year. And you would think, well, maybe that way <laughs> we can hire a pastor, but actually what we're finding is that many of the pastors coming out of closed churches, burnt out, decide they will not return into the ministry. You can drive down the street and see some of these closed churches, even in our communities. And our cities grow dimmer as these lights of the gospel to bless and illuminate Jesus to our communities are being extinguished one by one does your heart break for the brokenness and the bankruptcy of the people in the world around us? And so it starts with a burden from Jesus, then it moves into prayer. The book of Nehemiah begins with prayer and ends with prayer. And to many people, well, that just sounds like thoughts and prayers, meaningless, right? It's meaningless as making a wish. But for those who know and trust Jesus, you also know that prayer unleashes the power and the promises of the gospel to transform lives and families and churches and nations for the glory of God and the good of people. That is exactly why Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead on the third day to forgive us our sins like we were confessing in the earlier passage and to bring restoration and reconciliation forever in Christ. So would you join us as our church enters a season of prayer for our families? for our cities. We want to see restoration by returning to Jesus, trusting his promises to rebuild what is broken into something new, something better. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to invite you to take a quiet and humble moment during the music to praise God for who he is, to confess to God the sin we've done, and to trust God by asking for his help and his hope today. God of restoration, we praise you. We see so much brokenness and hurt in the world, in our lives, in our cities, in our communities, in our families. But you are our help and our hope. And so we confess that we are men and women 
we're not as good as the image we present to people. We are hurtful. We are selfish. And we ask not only on behalf of ourselves, but for our families and our churches and our cities, we have sinned greatly against you. But God, you sent a son, a perfect sacrifice, to be our righteousness when we couldn't do it for ourselves. And so would you restore what has been lost? Would you join us and heal us? Would you make us new again and make us your agents of restoration in our world, in our cities? As we look to you, as we spend time individually with you, speak to us, convict us, change us today. 